Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 190. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And in preparation for Thor, Love and Thunder, it is time for us to finally talk about the Thor trilogy. We've been anticipating this for a while. I'm excited to actually sit down and discuss these films. Same. I'm really looking forward to this rewatch, and I think it's so necessary for us because... As much as I love Thor, this is not one that you and I revisit often, so we definitely need this refresh for ourselves. Yeah, it's funny that you mention that, because I feel like I watched this film a lot when I first got the Blu-ray, and nobody watches Dark World. And then once Ragnarok came, like Ragnarok became everybody's jam. So to your point, this sort of fell by the wayside, and I am excited to... Revisit it for myself, but I feel like we're revisiting it for a lot of people because Ragnarok was such a thing, everything pales in comparison. And when you think about it, we're going all the way back to phase two. Yeah. Thor is one of the only Avengers, I mean, he is the only Avenger who has four films. Everyone else got their trilogy, and most of these trilogies ended a while ago. Ragnarok, you know, when you think about something like Iron Man, yes, that was all done before Avengers. Yeah. Then, you know, Ragnarok was fairly recent in comparison. Yeah, so I guess that's the thing, and because now Thor is involved with the Guardians of the Galaxy, he seems, like, as a character, I think he, like, it feels like he's more relevant than the rest of the Avengers. Um, but, the question is, where did all of this begin? And what I'm really interested in, and this is a question that I think we'll answer when we get through Ragnarok, I'm really interested to see how much the character has changed from 2011 when this fame, when this film came out until most recently. Yes, uh, speaking of changes... This review of Bleach Thor is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy and stay up to date on all of the new releases. All right, we're going to do this linear, as we do with most of the Marvel films. But before we get into it, something worth noting you and I discussed, literally as we were sitting down to do this, are we doing it as a linear review, or are we going to do a traditional monoreal review where we give the straight plot, and then we start breaking it down? This is one of the few Marvel films, and I'm not. it's not to say that it's watered down by any stretch of the imagination. This is one of the few Marvel films that you almost could do a traditional review for without it being linear. The only reason why I chose to say let's go linear is because you kind of time jump a little bit, you realm and planet jump. That could get a little bit confusing, but it is interesting to note that as far as Marvel goes, I think up to this point, this is probably the most straightforward film that we've reviewed on Monoreal Radio. Right, because we could have just stripped it down and done a very simple plot as far as Loki thwarting Thor's claim to the throne right? Uh, and leaving it at that. But I think for me, 
why you'd want to do it linear is because of all the flip-flopping Loki does. Uh, but I'm glad you bring this up now because this is a big note that I had and I, I want to talk about it at the top uh, because I think this is going to get a little bit confusing as far as space to Earth and, as you said, the realm and the time jumping. Um, the pacing of this film is all over the place. And that has less to do with cutting back and forth between S.H.I.E.L.D., Asgard, and and what's going on with Jane. Uh, and everything to do with, we don't get to live in scenes very long. Yeah, there are a lot of scenes in this movie. But they they get in and out in like two and a half to three minutes. Uh, like I have some specific notes when we get to these scenes in particular, but I feel like they could have grouped them together and let us live in them a little bit longer before, you know, spend some more time with Jane before we jump back to Asgard. Right. I mean, this film has a lot of deleted scenes. I couldn't believe how many deleted scenes there were, but also worth noting before we get into the actual plot here, this is one of the few, and I'd go so far as to say one of the last Marvel films that has a running time of under two hours. Right. Um, and I guess that was kind of done strategically, and that's why they get in and out of these scenes so quickly. All right, so we start in New Mexico. Jane Foster, Eric Selvig, and Darcy Lewis are tracking a strange atmospheric storm when they hit a man with their van. In 965 AD, in a flashback, we see Odin, king of Asgard, battle the evil frost giants and successfully capture the casket of ancient winters, the source of their power, and return to beautiful Asgard. He warns his sons, Thor and Loki, that someday they may have to battle the frost giants again. The start of the movie, to me, is just okay. And this doesn't have anything to do with the flashback in 965 AD in Asgard, I don't I did, I never loved the fact that the film starts with Jane, Eric and Darcy in this storm hitting Thor with the van and then immediately we're into a flashback. Get out of my head, man. Uh this is exactly what I was thinking. I think that the open is all wrong. I think it should have started with Odin's narration. I kind of get why they chose to start in New Mexico though because if you think about the end credit scene that we got that told us Thor was going to be the next film it was the hammer landing in New Mexico so I get where you sort of wanted to pick up that breadcrumb trail I actually I think this is worth noting it's so funny that when we saw that end credits we were so new to Marvel we didn't even know what the hammer was yeah we needed to take to the internets almost immediately to find out what the next film was going to be because it was just not enough of a clue for us. And look at us now. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> but anyway, um, I understand why they did it, but I think it would have definitely been a stronger choice to start with Odin sort of passing his knowledge down and passing the torch down to the boys, um, especially because this is no longer a Marvel sci-fi the way that we know it, where, you know, Tony is playing with technology. This 
ties to Norse Norse mythology and it shows how that mythology ties to our world. So I think it would have been much more effective to have started in Asgard and then cut to Jane tracking the weather to tie the two worlds together. However, they sort of wrote themselves into a corner with him getting hit by the car because why are they tracking the storm and then what, Thor's not going to be there? But to get an entire retread of this scene later It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I love the Asgard backstory and I love the introductions to Thor and Loki because we see them as children. We don't see them as adults just yet. But what they effectively do here is show you that Thor is the aggressor. He wants war. He wants battle. And Loki tends to take the backseat. He's a little bit more timid. You could tell he's more of a problem solver he's going to take a breath take a beat think about the situation learn from Odin whereas Thor is all about just getting into battle yeah that was brilliant too because it shows how much Loki observes everything and they were really smart not to give him as much dialogue and make Thor the aggressor of I want to fight I want to fight uh because Loki's got that still waters run deep thing happening and that's because he's always coming up with a plan um i also love odin's line only one of you will take the throne but both of you were born to be kings uh it tells us everything that we need to know that loki is not actually his son yeah it's a really great plant uh delivered by anthony hopkins who plays odin and anthony hopkins is an absolute legend I, I mean, my first experience with him was Silence of the Lambs, and I think from there I really delved into his other roles. But I think that was a lot of people was sort of the same thing. But I think that he is the absolute perfect casting in this role. I would agree. I remember when they announced that they got him, my mind was blown. And I think that this is a case of... Robert Downey and Gwyneth Paltrow walked so that the rest of Marvel could run. Because at this point, they had just done the Disney acquisition of Marvel, uh, which is why we chose to do this, because technically uh, this was distributed by Paramount. It was still done by Marvel Studios, but it was distributed by Paramount. Disney wasn't doing the distribution or the production yet. But they owned it. Yes. So it falls it falls under the umbrella for us. Right. And we were not going to start with Dark World. There's no way. But I think because Disney didn't have their dollars behind it yet, these films were not being taken as seriously. And I think it was sort of different because RDJ had that fall from grace in Hollywood. And he makes no secret about his troubles with drugs. Um, so this was his redemption role. Um, And I think, you know, once you got him and Jon Favreau on board, it wasn't hard to get Gwyneth Paltrow because she had such a smaller role as Pepper Potts in the first Iron Man. Um, But because you had all this star power attached to Marvel already, I think they sort of took away that stigma of making these comic book films. And that's why you open the door to get such a huge cast for this movie, even though Hemsworth was largely unknown at this point. Yeah, I mean, this is the film that really put him very much on the map. He's also not the only accomplished actor in this film. Let's go back to the three that we get introduced to earlier. 
And, like, I kind of toyed with the idea of not discussing them just yet because we only see them for a brief moment, but we get introduced to them here, so we might as well flesh them out. Um, Jane, Eric, and Darcy. I want to actually start with Stellan Skarsgård because I'm just going to make this plain and simple. Bootstrap Bill. We all know him and love him. I've said it on the show before, and I will say it again. He's good in everything, so he's good in this. Yeah, he's great. But what I love is that he mixes drama uh, drama and comedy well in this role. And I, I appreciate the fact that as the MCU got deeper and deeper, they really expanded on this character. Yeah, I'm wondering if that was a struggle for him where everybody got to do a little bit more comedy and they got into the fight scenes. And really he only has that one scene of comedy where he's drunk and otherwise he's the anchor of this film holding it down. So, I mean, it seemed like the cast had a lot of fun making this film, but I wonder if that was a challenge that he didn't get to be in on the fun as much as everyone else did. Yeah, Natalie Portman plays Jane Foster. We know her from Star Wars, but she has become incredibly accomplished as well. So to the point that you made earlier... um. Some of those, like like you said, RDJ, walk so that Marvel can run. I think that despite the fact that this, this didn't have the Disney money behind it and the tone was totally different, you can see the shift here, especially because it's not just Anthony Hopkins. There are a lot of very accomplished actors in this very large cast. And Natalie Portman, I think, sometimes gets forgotten about. Because she does more in this movie than you think she does upon rewatch. I mean, she's going to get her due. Yeah. Clearly in Love and Thunder. Because I think it's pretty much out there now that they are tracking the comic book stories. And she's just going to completely take over. Right. Honestly, if Gwyneth Paltrow was not Pepper Potts, I don't think that you would have gotten Natalie Portman to do this role. Because Star Wars really was her breakout role. And she was fairly young when she did that. I think she was trying to break away from those sort of films uh, because after that, she did like a run of 90s. I don't want to call them indie films, uh, but they were they were a lot of coming of age films that she did um, with big name talent. Uh, and then probably her most notable role before Love and Thunder, is is Black Swan. Right. Which she won the Oscar for. Uh, so I really think that she was trying to break away from being in the big blockbusters, and this sort of pulled her back in, probably because the rest of the cast was very attractive. Yeah. Uh, Kat Dennings is Darcy, and she was, I'm not going to call her a bit actress, she had been a secondary character in a lot of films, but you recognized her. You knew who she was. Well, she had um, Two Broke Girls. Nah, I don't think she had that when they did this. I think that came after this. I have to look, but she also did a show. I remember, I think it was her first show. Uh, she was in a show with Bob Saget where she played the daughter. It was like after Full House. Um, similar premise. It was like a single dad raising a couple of kids. Uh, and I loved her in that because she it, she is what she is here. Yeah. She's 
quirky, but not in an annoying way. Uh, she's sarcastic. She always delivers a great one-liner. And she's been doing that since she was a kid. And I I follow her on social media. If you're not following her on Instagram, go do yourself a favor. I love her. She's she's funny. She does gardening tips. I kind of feel like she is the type of actress where what you see is what you get with her. Yeah. Um. And And she's another character that I love how... As the MCU got expanded, especially once we got into WandaVision, how they took this character and really expanded upon it and gave her a big footing in the MCU. Yeah, I'm really hoping that WandaVision was not the last that we've seen of her. I I hope that they'll give her a small part in Love and Thunder if they're, you know, cutting back to Earth. Um, But I'm hoping that they'll also find other ways that they can utilize her. Yeah. All right, back into the film here. On the day that Thor is to be named King of Asgard, the Frost Giants arrive to steal the casket of the Ancient Winters, but are stopped before they can leave. Thor wants to attack in response, but Odin reminds him that he is not yet king and war isn't the answer, but Loki convinces him that he is right. Thor, along with Loki, Sif, Volstagg, Fondrel and Hogan go to the forbidden Jotunheim to seek answers via the Bifrost, um, which they are let through by Heimdall. Um, Okay, so what I really like here in this scene is that they build upon the idea that Thor as a child was the aggressor and he had much to learn. And now on the day that he is, it's coronation day, it's coronation day. He has learned literally nothing. That's a really interesting point that you bring up because he's proven himself worthy of the throne in terms of being a warrior and winning all of these battles. But you're right. Mentally, he hasn't really grown yet, which is the entire arc of this this film um and he still very much has his hand on the trigger which you do kind of need that because that is what gets the ball rolling and and really it's the spark that ignites everything as far as the conflict with the frost giants but that's all really just one big distraction for loki being the puppeteer of everything well this is the incredible thing right like despite the fact that he's the same exact way that he was as a child. Everybody else has shown incredible character development so quickly. Because to the point you made just now, Loki's the puppeteer that's making all of this happen. So we see him as a child be observant. Like you said, the still waters run deep. And to see how he is now accomplishing his mission shows just how quickly he learned and how long he was sitting on it. And you also see as Odin has gotten older, while Thor truly is his favorite child because it is his only true son, he's not going to be as soft on him now as he was when he was a kid. I would agree with that, but I don't know that I agree about Loki developing quickly. He certainly learned quickly, but he's still the jealous brother just as he was when he was a kid. All of this, everything that he does really is triggered by jealousy. Not even not even for him being power hungry. It's just that he, he doesn't even want the throne for himself and he says as much later on in the film. He just doesn't want Thor to have it. 
Speaking of Loki, I think part of the brilliance of this character is really the actor who played him. Uh, Tom Hiddleston is just a genius. He gives him such a, such a stoic quality. Uh, like I said, still waters run deep, but you can just tell his wheels are always turning. I remember when we saw this movie for the first time, I thought that he was a scene stealer and I couldn't wait to see them develop him further as a villain. And if there's one character that the MCU has gotten right from start to finish, other than Tony Stark, I think it's Loki. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to doing a rewatch of that series as well. Yeah. And Chris Hemsworth, we see him now as Thor, our title character, and he just embodies everything that is this character. Yeah, I remember when they cast him and seeing this trailer, and I thought, wow, like, he really does look the part. You've got, you know, an incredibly jacked guy that's going to bring the strength needed for this role, but he does have, let's just call it what it is, those supermodel good looks. Uh that you need because he's a god. You do have to have that sort of otherworldly look about you, and I I think they got it perfect with him. Bleached eyebrows and all. I don't know. <laughs> it's so funny because until that meme a few weeks ago, I totally forgot that they bleached his eyebrows. I don't know who thought this was a good idea or why they even did it. I... I can't get my head around this one. It's so jarring to see the Thor that we know now with these eyebrows. I mean, it doesn't take away. Chris Hemsworth is handsome no matter what you do to him. But good Lord, it it's just such a bad choice. And in a film where they did everything else, they did so many practical effects in this film. I don't think people realize that because Asgard is by and large CG. Uh, I think everybody thinks that for the most part, the whole film is CG. Uh, but for a film that used so much practical and knocks the makeup out of the park, I'm like, this is what you did to your lead? And I got to tell you, I think the CG in this movie is outstanding. And I think that when you don't rely on CG for literally everything and you do practical set builds and you mix in CG when it's necessary... That's why a movie that at the time of this recording is 11 years old looks better than movies that are getting released this summer. I agree. Uh, it looked great then. I was very impressed by it. We've said Asgard is one of the most amazing things that Marvel's ever ever done. Yeah. Uh, and it holds now. Um, I think this is a good time to bring up uh, the director, Kenneth Branagh, who we absolutely skewered in our review of Artemis Fowl. Not just us. <laughs> True. Um, I, I think he did an incredible job with this as far as this, the set build and creating this world. The only thing that I don't like, and I'm surprised we've made it this far into the review without me hitting on it. Um, the Dutch angles, they don't work anywhere. And I can appreciate that you were trying to stylize a superhero film, but in a world where we're trying to get these superhero films to be taken seriously, putting the camera on a tilt and having your horizon line at a 45 degree angle, it doesn't cut against anything. It, it, the whole point of editing is to have seamless continuity. And when you tilt your background or tilt any shot, 
you're breaking up the continuity. You may as well have the character holding up a sign that says, hey, you're watching a movie, folks. It takes you right out of it. It takes you right out of it. Oh, I, I don't. So it doesn't bother me in in certain films. It didn't bother me here. I think had it not been for your complaints about it. There were 17 of them in the opening sequence. I don't think I would have noticed just how many there were. I stopped counting. When you have 17 in the first two minutes and 30 seconds of the film, I, I gave up. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that they did right here, starting with the bridge. The bridge for the Bifrost is unbelievable. Oh, my God. It's so incredible. Like, there were so many choices that they could have made when you hear a rainbow bridge. I mean, they could have just gone for the obvious and put Roy G. Biv in a row and just had people walking over it. But then it looks like Mario Kart. <laughs> I didn't think of that. That's good. Um, no, but what they did here, they made it look like granite. And then when there's a point of impact on it, it glow. It, it is one of the most beautiful things that they have ever done. In Marvel. And it leads you to Idris Elba. Oh, don't we all want that Idris Elba at the end of a gorgeous rainbow bridge? He's great. Um, he's great, in, the, but he's another one. He's great in everything, so he's great in this. But I honestly forgot that he was in this movie because they give for such a... And he was a big-name actor at the time. He gets kind of a small role. Like, Heimdall's very important for the plot of this film. But if you think about it, he doesn't get all that much screen time. Not when you hear that Idris Elba is in a Marvel film. He doesn't get a lot of screen time, but what he does, he steals. Yeah. I I love this. To, to have to play against Anthony Hopkins, who is going to be this wise king, father figure, Heimdall, or Idris Elba manages to make Heimdall that in his own right, because he does have this otherworldly knowledge. Um, he is someone that people very much look up to, but to be able to separate that from what Anthony Hopkins is doing, the way he does it is incredible. Yeah. Uh, at the Jodenheim, Thor demands answers from the Foss, uh, Frost Giants and is told that the House of Odin is full of traitors, which leads him to becoming frustrated. After being insulted, Thor begins to fight the Frost Giants, so the rest who have gone with him join in. Odin intervenes and ends the fight, uh, at least temporarily. Loki, meanwhile, becomes suspicious when he sees that, unlike the rest, he is not injured when he is grabbed by the Frost Giants. Knowing that war is on the horizon, Odin tells Thor that he is unworthy to be king, so he strips him of his powers and curses him to Earth. This battle scene at the Jotunheim is excellent. It really is. Again, this is somewhere I thought it was CGI. All of these frost giants are practical makeup. I love it. And I I love it and hate it because we have been so conditioned to think that everything is CGI. Um, I didn't appreciate a good makeup for what it was on first viewing. And until we watched the... Um, the making of featurettes, I had no idea. I thought it was all CGI. Much like Guardians, they did the same thing. It was all practical. So it leads you to ask the question now, why can't you just keep doing that? Because Disney relies too much on CGI, and when they get it wrong, it's really bad. And spoiler alert, I mean, I know this is a lot of actors that you're paying to be on set, but 
for the most part, that is cheaper than doing it in post. Um, I want to talk about a character that we have not brought up yet, but steals the scene in this battle, and that is Mjolnir. Odin gave Thor the hammer earlier on, but this is the first time as the audience that we get to see what it can really do. Um, I don't know that this was a strong start, though. Uh, I remember the first time we saw this thinking, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, when he he spins the hammer and he crashes to the earth and, you know, the lightning shoots everywhere and it can decimate everything in its path. Uh, I was really impressed by it. But seeing how Mjolnir has grown throughout the rest of the films, I feel like there was a lot more in the bag of tricks that they could have put into this battle. But maybe that was intentional holding back the power so that it could grow with us as Thor's character grows. Correct. And and Thor's character even grows a little bit here because in spite of the fact that he's the aggressor and he wants war and he wants to battle, this is the first time that you actually see him disrespect Odin when he, when he says that you're an old man and you're a fool, when everybody else laughs at us. This is a huge moment in this film because it not only causes Odin to strip Thor of his powers, but it's the first time that you really see, for better or for worse, Thor's sort of, like, advocate for himself when it comes to Odin. Because, not for anything, while I don't agree with how he handles the situation, I don't necessarily disagree with the message that he's trying to send. Right, because that exchange that he has with his father, as far as the beliefs of the old and new regime, is so poignant. I mean, that applies to business and politics now. Um, Where I do disagree with you, though, Thor actually did demonstrate a little bit of maturity because at first he was not looking for a fight. I know... This entire time he's been saying more, war, war, we have to be ready. But the fact that the Frost Giants burst in on Coronation Day was not a coincidence. And he recognized that. He went to Jotunheim for answers. And Loki, again, in the brilliance of flip-flopping sides, was able to talk Thor down and have him walk away from the battle. It was because the Frost Giant... um, whose name always escapes me. Uh, Laffy. Laffy, thank you. Um, He took that one more dig, and then even Loki knows that it's over at that point and that Thor is too triggered and and they're going to fight now. Um, But I think it's important to note that at this point, there, there was an instance where Thor was trying to walk away. On Earth, Darcy tases a furious Thor because now we've hit them with the car again. Uh, so they take him to a hospital where he fights off the doctors and escapes confused as to where he is and how he got there. Uh, Milnir, meanwhile, draws a crowd of spectators trying to pull it from the ground, also drawing the interest of S.H.I.E.L.D., while Jane, Eric, and Darcy seek out Thor for answers. I think the taser is like the first bit of quote-unquote Thor comedy that we get in the MCU. Um, I forget that that's kind of where it all starts. Um, 
And to the point you made earlier with the hammer, this is where we pick up from that post credit scene that we talked about earlier with Colston when he comes up and says, we found it. Right. And I feel like that's when we should have been introduced to these characters. Because like I said, we didn't need an entire retread of Thor getting hit with the car. Although I will say, as, as funny as it is, the scene is great, especially the taser. You get it's not just the Marvel comedy, but it's the Darcy comedy that I love. Um, there's such a great juxtaposition of, you know, you've got this mighty Thor uh, that's taken down by a car and he's knocked out. But it's also important to demonstrate that he has lost his powers. He's been stripped of everything. Um, so you do need it. But I wish this was the first time we were seeing it. I think it would have landed a lot harder. Yeah, I think the Stan Lee cameo here is great. And I think that talking about things landing, I think the second car hit still lands. When they hit him with the car the second time outside of the hospital, it's, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm conditioned to look at Thor as comedies now, as the series and the character have drawn on. But it's funnier to me now, maybe, even than it was when we saw it the first time. I agree, but I think a third time, it, would, it, it wouldn't have been as funny as an ongoing bit. You would have been beating a dead Thor, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, when you write good comedy, you don't overdo it. Fair. Uh, but yeah, to me, th- probably the funniest scene in this whole film is the average Joe's trying to lift the hammer. Uh, and this is probably, I mean, I've said this before, but I forget about this one. This is my favorite Stanley cameo. Yeah, this one is really, really good. As, because it gives him something more to do. Yeah. And he's trying, oh, with the truck, and he rips the bed out of the back of Did the I truck. get it? Oh, it's so good. It's great. On Asgard, Loki admits that he told Heimdall to go to Odin to intervene, but the rest becomes suspicious of whether Loki is the traitor or not. Loki grabs the casket and shows his frost giant form and demands answers from Odin, who admits that he took the orphaned Loki as he hoped that he could eventually bring peace between the two realms. As Loki angrily carries on, Odin falls into the Odin sleep. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where Loki is born. I, yes, I completely agree. That's exactly what I was thinking. Him contemplating letting Odin go and not calling for help, that tells us everything we need to know about the character because he, I hesitate because he sort of is prepared to let him die, but at the same time, I mean, you know you can't trust Loki at this point, that's for sure. But if you think about every other instance in this film where he could have let one of his family members die, he never does. Yeah. So he hesitates, but he follows through and he chooses the good. Yeah, Hiddleston really shines in this moment. Absolutely. While at the diner, Thor learns that Milnir is on Earth, so he sets off to retrieve it in exchange for telling Jane about everything in which she is interested in for the sake of her research. But 
Eric talks her out of it, at least temporarily, because Jane is what is going to get Thor to the crater. Jane sees that S.H.I.E.L.D. has taken all of their data and equipment, leaving them to start their research from scratch. On Asgard, we learn that Loki has assumed the role of king and refuses to allow Thor back into Asgard. I have a lot of things to say. I do, too. Um... Can I just start with the pacing? Because I think that is where this whole thing becomes problematic. And that's why there's so much to say. Thor wakes up in the morning. They give him uh, Jane's ex's clothes. And he's like, I need sustenance. Then you cut back to Asgard. And then we come back to the diner. This is what I was talking about before with living in scenes a little bit longer. You could have had him wake up get the clothes and take him straight to breakfast, then cut to Asgard and then come back to see shield raiding their, uh, their office. Um, it's just so weird. We don't get to live in these scenes for longer. You need to let them breathe. And that's where the pacing goes all over the place. Like I get that they were trying to hit us by or to take us by surprise with shield just showing up like that. But we need to spend a little bit more time with Thor getting acclimated. And I think that's also where I have issues with Jane and Thor's relationship because they are leaning so hard into Thor's aesthetic and Jane is finding him attractive that I don't buy their actual feelings because we don't get to live with them long enough. It's too heavy-handed when she gives him her ex-boyfriend's clothes and his literal name tag is still on the shirt. That's not even my issue with it. My issue is that he's standing there without a shirt. Well, no, I have no issues that he's standing there without a shirt. Let's be clear on that. But because that's how Jane is interacting with him and she's all flustered, I don't buy this any more than Darcy being attracted to him. I don't buy Jane's real feelings. And I think that also comes from we are not staying in these scenes long enough and spending enough time with the three of them before we cut back to Asgard to see this relationship start to develop. The other thing is, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but we keep hearing about our research, but our research, you know, we're scientists. So, you know, research. I don't think the research is ever really clearly defined. I think we're just supposed to buy into the fact that, but they're scientists and they do research. Right, because they have a van. But really, when you think about it, all we've seen them do is chase down a a cylinder like they do in Twister. Yeah. Except Twister, we had a much clearer explanation of what they were trying to do. Right. Um. I will give you that as much as, and we haven't talked about how much I absolutely love this set. To me, as beautiful as Asgard is, I love New Mexico just as much. I love this little town that they created where it's like anywhere USA. It is a Main Street USA. Thank you very much. Um, But yes, to your point, the set is dressed nicely with their equipment, but that's it. That is the only part that screams science. Yeah. It's not really until she has the heart to heart with Thor and he explains the realms to her that you sort of understand what she's doing. Yes. When he's not smashing coffee cups in the diner. Hey, do you remember when we hated shield? Remember when that was a thing? 
This is such a rude introduction to S.H.I.E.L.D. because you don't feel like you can trust them. And Colston? I hate that I hate Colston. And that was the brilliance of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Colston when they started in with them early on. Right, because I th- this is Colston's intro, right? Because the only other taste of S.H.I.E.L.D. we've gotten is... Um, Samuel L. Jackson and Scarlett Johansson in the uh, end credits of Iron Man. I think so. I have to go back and watch the earlier Iron Man movies. And I'm trying to remember if this came out before Captain America. They they were they were both they were the both, same year. The, yeah, they were both 2011. But I think this was first i think this was memorial day and cap was fourth of july i think so i think so but the point is like i had to sit back and laugh like at myself as i'm reliving this going that's right there was a point where we hated them we hated shield honestly it's been so long since we watched this i forgot hawkeye was in this movie yeah yeah that was a great plant yeah, that was a really great plant later on. But to your point, this is where we really get to see what Shield is all about, other than the plants with Black Widow and Nick Fury. And I think that that was all strategic, because at the time they started Iron Man, I don't know that this bigger picture with Avengers, I, I think it was an idea, but I don't know if it was something that they were going to follow through on just yet, gauging how popular this could be. Um. So I think they held Colston and the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D. in case it didn't pan out. Yeah, like if Iron Man had been a flop, we never would have gotten any of this. For sure. No one would have been any wiser that this is ultimately where they were going to go with it. Exactly. Um, Speaking of plants, I love that we get the Disney books planted in the library when Eric goes into the children's section to pull out that old mythology to show Jane and... Darcy just how crazy all of this is because Thor keeps telling them that he is the god of thunder that is brilliant to really drive it home how childish he thinks everything is yes like when he and when he goes into the pet store and he goes I need a horse (laughs) that was really good um Loki is king as well when he is on the throne and that was a big thing for Hiddleston like he loved that room he loved that scene and it shows because his performance here is outstanding he is I actually think this is probably his best scene in the whole film because it's such a subtle performance prior to this Lady Sif and the Warriors 3 are sitting around the fire they're they're talking about what can be done about Thor And they start to compare their notes and they realize that something is not right. And they do start to think that Loki is the root of all these problems. Uh, So they go to approach him about it. And, you know, they're they're not that Loki makes them bow, but they realize they have to play along with his game. So they bow. And when they talk about going to retrieve Thor, Loki's telling them, well, how can my first act as king be to undo what the last king did? People aren't going to trust me. And they see right through that excuse. Um, I think it's a brilliant performance for Hiddleston. Again, it's so subtle, but he delivers it in such a way that's like, don't mess with me. Don't defy me. Uh, What I think, though, gets squandered is the opportunity to, to develop 
Lady Sif and the Warriors Three a little bit more because they are so fiercely loyal to Thor and they're such great caricatures of what these warriors should be. But I feel like we don't get to know them as well as we could. Agreed. I think that you do see them develop as the movie goes on. I think this is the first instance where they start to question what they've learned, which is kind of just be blindly loyal to a king. But they could have done a little bit more here, but maybe this goes back to the pacing issues that you have had throughout the movie so far because they're just concerned with getting in and out of scenes so quickly. I think I think that definitely has a little bit to do with it because we know that they have a history with Thor. We know that they are the reason Thor was the next in line for King because part of that was that he had proven himself in battle and he couldn't have done it without the rest of them. Um, but other than those little quick one-liners in the beginning when he's trying to rally them to follow him to Jotunheim, he's like, you know, uh, who who led you to, to these feasts that you love so much and who believed in you that, that a maiden could fight in battle amongst the rest of us? And other than those lines, we don't really know their relationship to Thor and why they are going to choose. I think it's a, a really good point what you said that all they know is to be loyal to a king and now they're going to start thinking on their own. But we just don't have enough as to why they want to be so loyal to Thor. Yeah. On Earth, Jane decides to take Thor uh, to Milnir as she is frustrated with S.H.I.E.L.D. after they have taken all of her belongings and all of her research. On Asgard, Queen Frigga tells Loki that she hopes for both Odin and Thor to return. In New Mexico, Thor tells Jane he plans to grab Mjolnir and fly out of the S.H.I.E.L.D. stronghold. He fights his way through to find that he is not worthy, and he is unable to pull Milnir from the crater and is soon apprehended. Um, there's a lot of good that happens in these couple of quick scenes. Um, I actually love the scene with Queen Frigga and um, and Loki. Queen Frigga played by Rene Russo, Hollywood legend. Um, again, it's a small role, but I think for what they asked her to do, she knocked it out of the park. I think, again, this is one of those instances of this is why you get her, because it is a role that can be filmed pretty quickly. She's an important character, uh, but she doesn't need to do very much. And I think that's why a role like that is attractive to an actress of that stature. Plus, you're going to play opposite Anthony Hopkins, so you're not going to say no to that. Uh, but I love what they've done with Frigga as these films have gone on especially in Endgame. Yeah. Um, but I think the Loki moment here is great, where he's playing both sides so well, and he's so calculated, and you can see already how he's taking what she's saying, and he will later man uh, manip manipulate it to further his agenda because that's all he's done this entire time. I love this scene for the character. 
I do too, especially he's playing both sides when it comes to his mother. You would think that yes. all of this anger is directed at Odin because he's the one who took Loki from the Frost Giants. Uh, and because he's the one who physically removed him, he's not blaming his mother as much just because because she lied just as much as his father did. Right. Um, so while he's not screaming at her the same way, he's still acting out against her. Yes. And then on Earth, you needed this moment with Thor, this moment of weakness, um, because you needed to soften him. Because we know that he's our hero, so we, we're we supposed to like him because he's our hero. And he is funny, and he is charming, but only to an extent. Because ultimately, upon the first viewing, you're still sort of looking at him, not as a petulant child, but as a stubborn adult. And a little bit of an ego. Yeah, so I think you needed to soften him to have him connect with the audience a little more because we, up until this point, we really don't feel bad for him. It's not until this moment of weakness, literally and figuratively, that I think you actually start to have sympathy towards this character. I would agree. I think, like I said before, had they done more tricks with Mjolnir it would have lent itself more to this scene because it would have raised the stakes as far as why he needs it back so much. But what you realize in this scene is it's not just about the hammer. It's about his power. It's about everything. And you really had to strip him down and, and show that he lost everything so that he's willing, you know, he feels like he's got nothing to lose and that's why he's willing to sacrifice himself for earth and people that he's only just met uh, because he knows he can't get anything back, or at least he thinks he does because of what Loki has put in his head, which we're going to see in the next scene. Right, because while in captivity, Loki, uh, Loki visits Thor and tells him, he tells him that Odin is dead and that Frigga has forbidden his return, despite the fact that Loki is now the king. So Loki, as he's trying to leave tries to take Milnir, but he fails as well because he is not worthy. Eric arrives to visit Thor, giving him a false identity and blames Roid Rage for breaking into S.H.I.E.L.D. and convinces Colston to let him go. Eric tells Thor that he will buy him drinks in exchange for Thor leaving Jane alone, which Thor agrees to, except that Thor outdrinks Eric, who quickly passes out. Let's go back to this scene in captivity with Loki. It's so harsh, but it's so good. And it's another scene where Hiddleston steals the show. It's such a huge character moment for both of them. Uh, You're right. Hiddleston definitely steals the show. And the content of what he's saying is probably a lot harsher than Thor not being able to lift Mjolnir. Uh, but I think that scene still packs more of an impact. I think that has to way has to do with the way that it was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, no Dutch angles. It was just slow motion. The rain is falling, and it's beautiful. And I think that's why we're so much more more emotional than hearing these really hard things now that Odin is gone and his mother is blaming him, and she doesn't want him to come back. Um, 
this even more so than Loki playing both sides with Frigga, it shows his true colors. And this is the jumping point for Thor's journey to become worthy. Correct. I also like here that we get Eric's backstory. I think it's great because up to this point in time, Eric is just sort of like a colleague of Jane's that's trying to protect her. And we don't know like if he's trying to be paternal because he's just the elder statesman or like what exactly the deal is. So the fact that it gets fleshed out that he worked with her father and that's why he has taken her under his wing so much and that's why he protects her. It just cleans up what could have been a mess otherwise. You absolutely needed it because the way that he's being paternal is coming off creepy until you find out that he is sort of this father figure because clearly Jane's father is not around. Right. Uh, And this is where you do get the comedy scene with Stellan Skarsgård where he does, you know, he is able to let the wall down a little bit and have some fun with it. Yeah. At the Jotunheim, Loki tells Laffy that he will lead the Frost Giants to Asgard to kill Odin and take back the casket. Heimdall becomes suspicious of Loki, who tells him that he is not to open the Bifrost unless he tells him to. It's at this point that Loki is slowly being built into such an outstanding villain. Yes. Um, And I wish that they would have kind of rolled with that a little bit more. I like that Loki eventually kind of becomes a protagonist. And he was great in the Avengers as the big bad, but I wish they would have just drawn that out a little bit further because he's so... Like, I love him as as a good guy, but I love him even more as a villain. I agree. This is where the pacing does work, though, because you are building up your villain and that is now juxtaposed against the love story between Jane and Thor. When after they put Eric to bed, uh, he finally tells her everything that she wants to know. And he shows her that her research, we finally get to see what this research is. She's on the right track, but um, it's so unbelievable that people aren't going to take it seriously as science yet. And there's that beautiful quote of where I come from, magic and science are one and the same. This is where I start to believe the romance a little bit more than just she's physically attracted to him. Uh, It's a really sweet scene. Um, But this is where Thor's ego is completely stripped away and we totally fall in love with our hero at this point. Correct. Growing frustrated with Loki, Thor's friends, as well as Heimdall's scheme to send them to Earth to retrieve Thor and save Asgard, drawing the attention of S.H.I.E.L.D. Loki, meanwhile, unleashes the Destroyer and sends it to Earth to kill Thor and his allies. On Earth, Sif tells Thor that Odin is still alive, while on Asgard, Loki relieves Heimdall of his duties and freezes him. The Destroyer arrives and unleashes chaos on the small New Mexico town. Thor seemingly sacrifices himself, proves himself worthy, uh, worthy, causing Mjolnir to fly from the crater into his grasp and giving him his powers back. This is just my opinion, because I know that you've had pacing issues. A lot. I mean, I mean, a lot obviously happens in this very small window, 
But I actually don't think that it's that I don't think it's for the pacing's detriment that all of this happens so quickly. It's a lot happening, but it all takes place in New Mexico. We're not cutting back to Asgard in between. And I think that also has to do with once Thor's friends get there, you don't need to cut back to what's going on with them and them putting the pieces together. Um, Everybody, you know, the playing field is leveled. Everybody's in it together. Uh, I love this scene. I think the Destroyer is a great villain. I wish he would have lasted a little bit longer, that we would have gotten to see a little bit more of a battle. Um, Because I don't think that it would have drawn out especially once he gets Mjolnir back. I mean, you've you've taken out every one of his friends and now it just leaves him and Thor and I feel like Thor took him down in 2 seconds. Um but I do love the moment where he apologizes to Loki. Um and I think that that's where we see that as much as Loki is going to play both sides, he is going to be loyal to his brother. And that is a thread that is going to continue throughout the rest of the Avengers. Yeah. He, he's going to try and hurt him, but he's never going to let anything like serious happen to Thor. Yeah. And I think the important part is this is where we finally fall in love with Thor as a god. Because we have not up until this point. Remember something, we only like Thor as a mortal. With no ego. With no ego, and that only just happened a few minutes ago. We never really loved Thor the god. Now we love Thor the god. And that's not to say that he's not a likable character. It's just that, you know, you find him funny, but you don't care about him the same way you do after this point. Um, the whole scene is brilliant, not just for the character, but with the set and the way that they destroy this town. Um, there was one point that I thought that it was a real town and they did all of the explosions with CGI. No, this entire thing was a set build, um, on, on a ranch, uh, in Hollywood, which I think that was one of the ones that was destroyed in the recent fires a couple of years ago. Um, but they... They, the filmmakers had this idea of like a Western battle and they do shoot it as such the way Thor turns that corner and he approaches the destroyer. Uh, so that is why they chose to use a ranch, use a set that was typically an old Western town and they just built it up to modernize it a little bit. Modernize, but still look like the 50s at the same time. Yeah, 50s with a 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love the whole aesthetic of the town. I said it before. Uh, but then... They, they were able to destroy it because they did a practical build for it. Uh, and even the actors loved it so much. They, they were upset seeing things blown to bits. Yeah. Um, the only thing I don't like about this scene is I think that the Odin tear, it, while he's in the Odin sleep, it's just way too cheesy. Um, Thor sacrificing himself. If he's a god in this in this other world and other realm where we just believe that magic exists, that we've seen it like in regular like Disney animated films where somebody sacrifices themselves and there they are, they're worthy. I don't think we needed an Odin tear to hit the ground to like solidify the worthiness of Thor. I agree. That's a bit heavy handed. And I know that Odin loves his children, even Loki. Odin doesn't cry. I don't need to see Odin cry. 
I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. We're going to hit the fast forward button here. And that's because that's how the film is written. Um, <laughs> Thor defeats the Destroyer and tells Coulson that he will agree to be an ally to S.H.I.E.L.D. if he returns all of Jane's research, which Coulson agrees to do. Heimdall breaks from the ice to open the bi- uh, Bifrost and bring Thor and his friends back. And Thor promises that he will return to Earth for Jane after he is victorious. Asgard is under attack of the Frost Giants, who have arrived to kill Odin, but Loki kills Laffy, who declares his allegiance and his alliance to Odin. Thor, however, exposes Loki for the liar that he is, and as Loki tries to destroy the Odinheim using the power of the Bifrost as a means of proving himself to Odin, Thor refuses to fight Loki and tells him that he can't eliminate all of the Frost Giants. When Loki threatens Jane, Thor fights him and uses Mjolnir to destroy the bridge that connects to the Bifrost, ending its abilities to ever function again. Odin arrives to save Loki, who falls into what is left of the open Bifrost and is sent to another realm. While Jane is left on Earth without Thor, Asgard celebrates the defeat of Loki and the return of Odin. Odin tells Thor that he will be a wise king and that he has made him proud. Heimdall tells Thor that there is hope in returning to Earth and that Jane continues to search for him. This all happens really, really, really fast. And I hate to say it, because of that, a lot of it is unmotivated. Starting with S.H.I.E.L.D. being so willing to give her her stuff. I mean, I'll I'll buy that they're going to give her the stuff back, but why are they willing to work with her? It almost sounds like they're going to fund her research, which we still have a very vague idea of what it is. Science. Other than, yeah, Thor doodling in her journal. That sounds dirty now that I think about it anyway (laughs) (laughs) i didn't mean to do that um but yeah i i don't understand why after they've locked thor up he's also willing to count them as an ally because we as the audience know that the avengers are coming that's the that's the truth right it is and they wrote themselves into a corner i mean i i guess you could sort of buy into the notion of he is a god he has his powers back he's always going to protect earth um but i feel like i'm reaching a little bit here i feel like they just when they were doing it they were like "Eh, they know that we're going to the avengers it's fine we don't need to explain it yeah and and that's where especially for something as big as shield we we should have gotten a little bit more or like make make hawkeye that bridge you know they well, got him for this film. Like, right. it would have been nice to have, like, a moment with him and Thor. And he's in it for, like, 30 seconds. Well, here's the weird thing. It happens quickly. I don't think it hurts the pacing of the film. I I think it hurts the story, though. Yeah. Like, does that make sense? It hurts the screenwriting more than it hurts the pace of the film. Correct. Because the ce- the scenes don't really seem rushed. But it leaves us asking questions. And, like, if you were trying to get it in under two hours, you could have maybe found another minute in there where you don't just assume that we all know what S.H.I.E.L.D. is, even though we all know what S.H.I.E.L.D. is. Not everybody knows what S.H.I.E.L.D. is. You know what I'm saying? And that the Avengers are coming. And I think that they just kind of leaned on that as an excuse to get out of it quickly. Agreed. Um, 
but I mean, I, ultimately, I think, I think the ending of the film is good. Um, I think that you need Thor to defeat Loki, but you you can't have Loki die. You need it to be open ended. You need him to go into the unknown because we need to see him again. Um, I think that you know. Odin coming to terms with the fact that Thor has proven himself and he's acknowledging that he's going to be a great kid. Like, all of this works. Maybe, I don't, but I can't call it rushed because I don't think the pacing is bad. It's just they got to it very quickly. I think the if I have a problem, it's that the battle with Thor and Loki is almost non-existent. And I know that that was sort of the purpose because Thor did not want to fight him at all. And he was forced in a position that he had to fight him because Jane was going to be killed if Loki won. But I feel like we got to that point and they just got through it really quickly. I agree. This was almost the same instance as the battle with the frost giants where Thor is actually trying to keep the peace and he's not looking for a fight, but then you trigger him by threatening Jane. Um, because really this whole thing was just a big misunderstanding. All Thor has ever wanted is a relationship with his brother. Right. And Loki has allowed jealousy to overtake him. He thinks that Thor is power hungry and wants the throne, but that's, that's not really it. He just wants to protect his family and his loved ones. And again, have that relationship. And Loki has to learn that. And he does because Thor could have killed him and right. he doesn't same way that Loki was never actually going to let anything bad happen to his family. It's just this jealousy that keeps getting the better of him. And I don't think that he ever says as much to Thor. It comes out earlier on in the film where he says, I never wanted the throne. I just wanted to delay my brother's idiot rule or something to that effect yeah. a little bit longer. Um, but I think if you would have had that exchange at wor of words between them where they came to that mutual understanding, then you lose the entire Avengers film. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so with all that being said, I think that's why, to your point, there wasn't this epic battle between the two of them because it could have been solved by coming to an understanding, they didn't want it to. You needed some other reason for for Thor to have to fend Loki off. Anything else, or are we ready for final thoughts here? Um, we've talked about the sets and the makeup. We have not talked about these amazing costumes, which I think now don't seem that incredible because we're so used to the big Marvel suits and when you see you know the progression of the Iron Man suit or the Spidey suit and what they've done with that in Tom, um, Tom Holland's yeah. Spidey um, there's so much focus on the other characters that I think it takes away from how gorgeous this costume design was um, especially something as iconic as Loki's horns Um that helmet, it's so like narrow on the cheeks. It's in like two pieces. So you have the headpiece with the horns and then the back goes around uh, Tom Hiddleston's neck and it like slap snaps into place. Right. 
Uh, I thought that that was just so cool. And then the outfits themselves, um, the way that they're pulling from history and the Norse mythology, and there's almost a little bit of like Greek God in there somewhere, but to make it work for the superhero armor, I think it's just so cool. Um, And it's worth noting too, that they had to pipe some cooling vents in there so that they could pump cold water through the actors' bodies because it was just getting too hot, especially in the New Mexico scenes. I yeah, I mean, I believe it. Um all right, are we ready to give our final thoughts on the film here? Yes. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? I'll go first. Um cuz I don't have much to say, honestly, other than I think the movie holds up. Um I think it's very strong and underrated, especially because to repeat myself, which you know I love to do. Um I think it just gets unfairly compared to Ragnarok and it is often forgotten about. People forget about The Dark World because it's an awful movie, which we get to suffer through next week. But I think that this is a really strong movie because from start to finish, I think it's one of the most complete films in the MCU. I think you get a clear beginning, a clear middle, a clear end. It goes back to a bigger conversation that we had about Toy Story 4, where... Sometimes these films, you know, they don't always have a beginning, middle, and end that are very clear where you can watch these movies as standalones. Um, But in this case, you can watch this as a standalone, and it's great. I think that all of the characters have proper character arcs. I think they hit all the beats the right way. I think the cliffhangers are just enough, and I think that it is just a complete film. I definitely agree. I absolutely love this film. I did from the moment that we saw it. This, I think, is what really triggered your, yours and my interest in Marvel. I mean, like, we always loved Iron Man. That was always my jam. I, I just thought it was such a cool movie. Um, and I loved Robert Downey in it. And he was, and still is, my favorite Avenger. He always will be. Um... But I think when we saw this and saw the pieces start coming together, and at this point, you knew Captain America was coming. You knew there was the Disney acquisition. You knew what they were building to. Um, This was a great hook, and I feel like it gets almost unfairly forgotten about because we know Thor the way that he is now in the latter Avengers and as Taika Waititi is directing, directing him. Yeah. We're going to next week, we're going to get another director. This is going to change hands again. Um, So I think because this was so long ago, I don't want to say it's forgotten about because it's Thor, but it is such a different feel than what these Marvel films have now. You can definitely tell the difference in story and tone and just overall feel once Disney took over the production of these films. Uh, But with that being said, um, I still love it, even though it's not under the Disney banner. Uh, I totally agree that it is a complete film. You don't need source material to understand what's happening. Uh, It's a great standalone as far as not only story, but the full character arcs, like you said. And this cast is just top tier. They're incredible. And, uh, 
it's such a great setup for Loki too. I mean, I know this isn't Loki's movie, it's Thor, but like to see where they're going to take him, that's really just an added bonus on top of an already great film. We want to know what you have to say about Thor. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit to make sure we don't have big lines, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com, and I can help with any of your Disney vacations, whether it's Walt Disney World, Disneyland, or a Disney cruise. Yes, because news this week brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you're looking for media kits or graphic design, perhaps... Perhaps you are just looking for that Disney artwork in your home. Kelly has you covered, plus listeners of the show. Get a 10% discount with the code MONORAIL10 at checkout. You can see all of her work at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. And speaking of the cruises, we have a new ship that just came to port yesterday, uh, which would be June 20th at the time of this recording. The Disney Wish has arrived in Port Canaveral. Yes, and we were so looking forward to being locals and checking that out because how often do you get to see something like that? But because we finally caved on the APs and we were going to Epcot that night, we couldn't squeeze everything in because it it arrived in port at like five o'clock in the morning. We would have been on the road by four and we no longer need to to kill ourselves on park days because we're yeah. not going on a full vacation. Yeah, and believe me, it had plenty of supporters. A few hundred people showed up to see it. Its maiden voyage um, is set for July 14th. Um, so exciting. I'm sure eventually we'll get on that ship. I'm excited to see it. Um, and I'm hoping that a lot of people are excited to see Lightyear because you can go to our TikTok to see our monoreal in a minute if you haven't seen it yet. And Instagram, it's on Instagram too. It is on our Instagram as well because we really enjoyed the film. However, it really didn't do well at the box office its opening weekend. It brought in $51 million, which is not a number to sneeze at. However, it was projected to make $70 million. Jurassic World, which was terrible by the way, retained its spot at number one because it made over 58 million. 
I kind of have a little bit of a theory here. I there are two things that I think are happening right now that are affecting the box office for Lightyear. I mean, that doesn't mean that it necessarily performed poorly. It just didn't outperform Jurassic Park. But I do think it's interesting to see those numbers come back when this was not a dual release and it didn't go straight to Disney Plus as well. So here's what I think is happening. The first thing, we went and saw Top Gun the night that Jurassic Park opened. Or Jurassic World, or whatever we're calling it now. We had to catch up. It was packed. Absolutely packed. And I know that there were times prior to social media where everything would get spoiled after the opening weekend that I would intentionally sit out the opening weekend for certain movies because they would just get too bloody crowded. So I'm thinking that might have something to do with it. I think Jurassic World... Because we didn't see it the opening weekend. We saw it its second weekend because we saw it the day before we saw Lightyear and it was still packed. So I think people were holding back and perhaps that's why Lightyear didn't do well. It wouldn't surprise me to see Lightyear take the number one spot in its second week. Partly because people were trying to sit out the opening weekend for uh, Jurassic World. But I think the other thing is in the Northeast... Kids are still not out of school until this week. So it. I think that once you get the Northeast out of school, you will see a second week run where I think Lightyear probably gets the boost that people expected it to have. Not that it's going to make $70 million in week number two, but I think you're going to get the boost that people thought it would have its initial run. Right. And this was also Father's Day, graduation weekend. It's a busy weekend for a lot of people. So... Going to a movie might not have been the top priority. For us, it was right. because it was so hot down here. So I didn't mind getting out of the heat. Um, but I, here's my other theory. And this one is the not-so-magical theory. We sat here last week and talked about Toy Story 4 and how we felt about it. And while the critics liked it, a lot of the fans did not. And I'm wondering... If this is one of those scenarios that we saw with Star Wars as the films went on where people are sort of leaving certain franchises behind, perhaps there is too much of a good thing, and perhaps people are speaking with their wallets because Toy Story 3 was such a perfect ending, Toy Story 4 really was unnecessary and I'm wondering if people are waiting for this to go to Disney Plus because they just assume it's too much of a good thing. That is an interesting theory and I'm wondering if it's a little bit of that coupled with people are very confused as to why Buzz Lightyear is not being voiced by Tim Allen and they've done it with the marketing they can't make it any more clear that this is we are seeing the movie that Andy saw that made him fall in love with Buzz Lightyear, and that is why he got the action figure for his birthday. Uh, I don't know how much more transparent they can be with it. Um, So I'm wondering, though, if that's why people are off-put by it, and maybe, to your point, they're just going to wait for Disney Plus so that they don't have to pay for it. Let's wait and see. I think that if you see a bump in week two, and I think that if it moves itself up to the number one spot in week two, it'll be just fine, and it was part A of the two theories where people were catching up 
with Jurassic World because they sat it out the first week. But if it fails to really get any traction in week two, I think people are speaking with their wallets about about it being too much of a good thing. That's really what I suspect is happening here. Speaking of too much of a good thing, uh, I don't know if you saw this. It only began to circulate now. Uh, Kristen Bell was on Jimmy Fallon the other night, and she unofficially, she said it. She goes, with no authority, I'm announcing Frozen 3 because we all want to do it. She even said she talked to Idina, and Idina's down. I mean, is that news? That's like the worst kept secret on earth. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a trilogy, right? But I'm just wondering if there are more wheels in motion that she was able to talk about it. And Idina is doing the harmonious uh, introduction or or some kind of performance with Harmonious at right. Epcot tonight at the time of this recording. So clearly she's coming back to Disney and Josh Gad, he'll do Olaf on Days That End and Why. Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised. I think that perhaps that was something that they were holding for D23 Expo. I'm sure Disney's not all that thrilled with Princess Anna right now, if that's what she spoiled. But I'm not surprised. And I'm that. See, now that's something I'm uh, excited to see because I really liked Frozen 2 a lot. But let this be the last of them. You know what I'm saying? Like, You've told the story. You've told a second story. I think you can conclude it in a third. That is something, as much as I enjoy Frozen, I can see that becoming too much of a good thing if you try to stretch it into a fourth film a la Toy Story. Even I will agree with that. All right. Well, we want to know from you if you plan on seeing Lightyear. If you did see Lightyear, what did you think of it? Were you one of the people that went out to Port Canaveral to see the Disney Wish roll in? Are you planning a trip on the Disney Wish, in which case you should email Jackie? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. We've already mentioned that social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Monoreal Radio. I just gave you the email address as well. Be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your uh, podcast platform of choice. And for everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.